Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, the 22nd of September. In today's podcast, Dr. Gary Groman will present updates in the vaccines race and he will comment on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, why it was stopped and how its resumption may raise a question about transparency. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Gary Groman. Dr. Groman, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, I'm a consultant virologist and I've worked for the World Health Organization in recent years and prior to that spent some 17 years with the Therapeutic Goods Administration and prior to that I had a research career. Gary, we've all heard of the temporary halt to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine trial. Can you fill us in with more details including the other reported adverse event that was felt to be by chance? and why it is now felt safe to resume the trial. Yes, it's, it's certainly a little controversial. Uh, so AstraZeneca stopped the trials, as we all know, because of one volunteer who developed a form of inflammation called transverse myelitis. Um, now, I think it's important to understand that uh, this is not too uncommon, actually, that styles of, uh, um, sorry, trials are stopped temporarily, so some investigations can go on for serious adverse reactions. Unfortunately, we don't know enough to really comment on why they decided to go ahead. We know why they stopped, but we don't know why they've decided to continue. And it's also important to understand that not, uh, the trials are not going ahead in every country. The British and Brazilian trials are resuming, have resumed, but the trials in the US and other places have not resumed because the regulators have not allowed it. So that's an interesting development anyway. It is a bit of a concern, and a number of scientists have already commented uh, that while the pause is not uncommon in such a large trial, um, the transparency involved here comes under question. So uh, it's fair enough, I think, for scientists and researchers to and regulators, of course, to ask for complete transparency. And I think the public would also want complete transparency because they, after all, are the ones who will be getting this novel vaccine. And it's not only one case. We know of the case recently, about a number of months ago, there was another serious adverse reaction. Again, we don't know enough detail and it wasn't enough to hold the trial, but nevertheless, there have been other serious, at least one other serious adverse reaction. So this, certainly must set off alarm bells uh, to regulators involved. And it remains to be seen whether the US and other countries 
decide to continue with the trial or if they want further information. But it is continuing in Britain and in Brazil at this stage. Has this affected the study timeline? Uh, no, these kinds of holdups won't particularly affect the timeline uh, because over 18,000 people have already been vaccinated. Uh, so the number of adverse reactions is actually small and we don't know if they're actually related. So that needs to be uh, set up front. But it shouldn't interrupt the timeline of the, uh, uh, the uh, program and data should be available. Early data should be available, I imagine, by November then it needs to be analysed and understood uh, and then uh, presented to the regulators uh, for further comment and hopefully, ultimately, registration, as the case may be. Now, with the increased scrutiny for adverse events, I suspect there will be a very low threshold to stop the trial again if another case of transverse myelitis or any neurological event occurs. Gary, how many events can be or will be tolerated before a vaccine is deemed not safe? Well, certainly not many. I mean, neurological uh, adverse reactions are very serious, as we know. Uh, but as I said, we don't know uh, the full story yet. We don't know if, for example, it was in a patient in the control group. I mean, that, has not been, that information has not been made available, which I think is unfortunate. So it's not for the company really to explain it away, but it's certainly I think they should provide more information to the scientists and therefore the public out there so we can all feel safe. I mean, if they're saying, yes, we're going to go ahead, but we're not going to give you any more information, it doesn't give you a very good feeling as somebody in the uh, general public. And I can understand the concern out there in social media and other places. We know these are serious adverse reactions. We know we have to be careful. We'll have to trust the regulators uh, to make the correct decisions about go, no go in terms of a trial and also the correct decisions when it comes to registration. But I think it is also important for a novel vaccine on a novel platform in a virgin population uh, where we're all potentially susceptible uh, to, we just don't know what, um, um, and, and we don't have long-term safety data on these novel vaccines in novel platforms Therefore, it's really, really important, I think, that information is, is made candidly available uh, in a common sense way so people can understand what's going on, why there was a stop, what the reason was, and why, in particular, the trial has been allowed to go on. But we, none of us have that information. It's all with the regulators and the manufacturers. That does take away a bit of a gloss, doesn't it? I mean, how will they make up for, if you like, our trust in the vaccine if it's that opaque? Well, I, th I think uh, we can rest on two things, I think. One is um, that, uh, firstly, it's not that uncommon. Uh, uh, sometimes in vaccine trials, there is a hold uh, for safety reasons, and that means both the manufacturer and the uh, regulators are being responsible. So that's good. Uh, so I think we can take some confidence there. And the second place we can take some confidence is that these trials are much, much larger than usual. Most phase three clinical trials might involve 6,000 subjects. We're talking here anywhere between 15 and 40,000, depending on the study, and then uh, long-term commitment to further study after that. So these are massive uh, phase three efficacy trials. And with a data set that, that that's that big, we will know 
um, it'll be rather obvious, the uh, adverse reactions between the test group and the control group. So by the end of the study, we will certainly know what's going on. But at the moment, they've not revealed that study. The excuse has been, at least in the newspapers, um, that there are confidentiality issues. But, you know, certainly one doesn't need to identify the subject. Uh, but, you know, I would have thought they could identify and write about the science and the rationale uh, behind stopping the study and starting it again in a much more effective and communicative way. And I hope that does occur at the end of the day because the general public needs to know, GPs need to know, they need to be confident to give the vaccine and other healthcare workers. We all need to be confident in the vaccine for safety. That is the primary thing for any vaccine because vaccines are going into healthy subjects. So it's very, very, very important that there is tremendous confidence in the safety of the vaccine. And, and people are a little concerned that with the rush, uh, the warp speed of uh, producing these vaccines in, in such a fast manner, that maybe something will slip through the cracks. So, you know, we, we have to be very, very careful and hopefully, uh, and I'm sure they will be, but the manufacturers and regulators really need to be on top of it and be brave and halt the studies if there's any issue. And certainly a neurological issue of inflammation of any sort is a serious is of serious concern and must be investigated, but I think also reported. Gary, Russia has begun its massive rollout of a Sputnik V, uh, which according to the developer and reporter in test, the Russian news agency, that the third stage of trial can be called mass vaccination. Now, Who's going to keep watch of both efficacy and complications? And can we trust the figures provided by the Russians? Yes, look, it's very difficult. Um, what they've done is uh, quite unusual and certainly not, not normal in terms of trialling vaccines and determining their safety and efficacy. So it's been approved for early or limited use. Now, that's unusual in itself. We, <laughs> I think any regulators ever approved a vaccine for early or limited use or for compassionate grounds or anything like this because vaccines go into healthy people. So just as a reminder, this Gamaleya vaccine from Russia or Sputnik V as they dub it, um, is a combination of two adenovirus vectors delivering their engineered coronavirus gene. And they've used both adenovirus type 5 and adenovirus type 26. They've approved the vaccine before the phase three trials have even begun, which is extraordinary. And certainly most vaccine experts would have decried this kind of move as very, very risky. Uh, A little after that, Russia basically walked back on the announcement and said it was a conditional registration certificate, which would depend on positive results from the phase three trials. So those trials, which were initially planned for just 2000 volunteers, have now been expanded to 40,000. So that's a good thing. So really their phase three trials, you know, they say it's registered for the public, but really it isn't. It's registered or being used on 40,000 people. So that ends up being a phase three efficacy trial, assuming they have appropriate controls. Uh, So while their phase one, two trials seem very good for safety and immunogenicity, which is not efficacy, but immunogenicity, Um, and they're found in smaller studies that antibodies and T-cell responses seem to be appropriate with only mild side effects, 
uh, yet they still need to complete this phase three trial. So it's all a little bit of uh, the use of language and smoke and mirrors, but what they've really done is moved into the press and said, we're approving a vaccine, but what they're really saying is, we are now doing a phase three trial, right. even though they've pre-approved it. So we just have to await that data and then see how good it is in terms of safety and efficacy. Again, that data won't be available for some time, probably uh, towards the end of the year at the very earliest. Now they have um, negotiated agreements already uh, to supply the vaccine in a number of countries, including Brazil, Mexico and India as well. And a number of countries have already jumped on board, just like Australia did with AstraZeneca and others, uh, to get contracts in early, which is probably a good thing. Uh, pending, as long as it's always pending, uh, the outcome of the phase three trial and uh, pending uh, regu independent regulatory scrutiny. Gary, do you know of any other results uh, or news regarding other vaccines? Well, um, yeah, there's a fair bit of uh, news around at, at the moment. We've been, I think everyone's been following the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well, which is an adenovirus 26 vectored vaccine. Now, they've had some success in uh, Ebola and other diseases using adenovirus 26, but now they've made one with a coronavirus gene. And they received millions of dollars from the United States government to develop it. Uh, and now they're also... Uh, about to launch their phase three trials this month, and they'll launch those in Latin America. We also know that the US government has uh, purchased 100 million doses of that vaccine pending registration. There's uh, a number of others uh, in the mRNA space, but uh, they're really basically in phase uh, two trials. Um, there are protein-based vaccines. We've heard about Novavax. They're well into their phase three trials. And I think by November, we should have some data there uh, on the protein-based vaccine. Um, uh, on that note, uh, there's also Sanofi Pasteur that have made a protein-based vaccine in addition to their mRNA. So they've actually got two in clinical trials. And their phase three trial data will be ready also by the end of the year. Uh, there's the Australian company vaccine, again, another protein-based vaccine from uh, South Australia, uh, and they've com they're combining viral proteins with an adjuvant. Now, they've successfully completed phase one trials last July, and they're hoping to start phase two trials in September, depending on uh, funding. Uh, we know about CSL and the University of Queensland, uh, and the government's, our government is also interested in that. And uh, again, uh, end of the year uh, for late stage clinical trials. So maybe there'll be results uh, by um, the early part of next year for that particular vaccine. Uh, so there's some of the uh, front runners. There are many others. I mean, in, in total, it really is uh, quite extraordinary. Um, if I get the figures right, we um, have something like nine vaccines in large-scale efficacy trials plus another five that have been so-called pre-approved and are still going through efficacy trials to be had by the end of the year. Um, so that's really encouraging those 14 in phase three. And then we have another 15 or so behind them that are in expanded safety trials. So that's basically uh, phase two and uh, partly some of the phase three program. And behind that, there's another 27 or so 
that are in phase one clinical trials. So that's, you know, a lot of vaccines uh, that are out there in, in clinical trials. So that's some 40 or so in clinical trials in human. Uh, and then behind that, there's another 92 vaccine candidates now uh, in active investigation in animals or preclinical trials. So there's a tremendous amount of work and research going on um, the idea being that we'll probably need more than one or two or three vaccines to supply the world. And they're all using different approaches, whether it's um, using uh, protein-based vaccines or using nucleic acid uh, type of vaccines, or whether using the virus itself, whether the virus be uh, alive or dead. Um, then, um, you know, these are all the different approaches uh, that people are using in the viral vector vaccines, of course. I think you're going to have a very, very busy November, December, January, Gary, as you wait for those results. Well, I'm looking forward to the results, and I'm sure they'll be, you know, hopefully be published uh, papers and people can scrutinise the data carefully, independent scientists and uh, vaccinologists and so on, plus, of course, uh, the regulatory process that are mandatory. So we'll just have to wait and see uh, what goes on, and, and I'm you know, personally very pleased to see such large studies going on around the world in different places. It just will give everyone um, more confidence in the safety of these vaccines. Efficacy is another question. None of us, I think, who have dealt with vaccines are really expecting more than 50% efficacy. And as I've mentioned before, if that's the case, then the question is, well, how effective ultimately will that be, particularly in the vulnerable community? Uh, and it begs all sorts of other questions. Do you even use it if it's only 50% or less? Or if there are secondary endpoints like uh, ameliorating severity or stopping a certain number of hospitalizations, then of course you would use the vaccine and that might be a good reason to use it for the secondary endpoints. Um, uh, and it's a bit like influenza in that regard. It may not give you full protection, only 50% or so, but it certainly has an effect on the number of hospitalizations and deaths and severity of illness in certain groups. So um, there is precedent for that and that's, and that's good. And we'll just have to wait and see what the efficacy data says. But um, as I've mentioned before in this program, no vaccine is 100% effective and very good vaccines might be 80% effective or 90%, but um, most vaccines are less than that. So we'll just have to await the data and see what the efficacy data says at the end of the year. Yes, there's so much to look forward to. Now, Gary, do you think that the upbeat talk of the vaccines being just around the corner might be affecting decisions made by various governments and by individuals? Look, I, I think it might, and many people have warned against this, even the head of CSL recently, uh, the chair of CSL recently commented that a COVID vaccine should not be part of our pandemic plan. And the reason for that is that um, we just don't know if it will be approved. We just don't know if it will work. We know it's six months away or thereabouts or more or maybe years away. We don't know what the data will be. We, we have to also put as much effort into treatment uh, and into the um, uh, things we're doing now, like social distancing and so on and other non-pharmaceutical non measures uh, that can be used in the community, educate the community and use that fully. That's really important. Even when a vaccine is around, I still think a lot of those social distancing rules and hygiene and so on 
should definitely be kept in people's minds. That's really, really important. And it, we, we can't simply plan on a silver bullet for the future. I fully agree with that. We have to, and we have to do the work slowly and carefully uh, to give confidence. The last thing we want would be a safety issue in any particular age group. And not all the vaccines have got multiple arms in their study either. For example, studies in the pediatric under 18 group or studies even in the over 70 group. Um, uh, most of the trials are the healthy 18 to 55 year old group. Uh, we just need to be a little bit careful and, and certainly regulators won't accept, um, um, uh, won't accept any extrapolation of data into other stratifications of age and so on. So depending on the study, now some studies in their 40,000 have got several arms and that's really, really good. But even the phase one, two haven't particularly determined the dose uh, or which of their candidates might give the fewest safety effects. So there's a really a long way to go and a lot to think about for the regulators when all the final data comes out. They'll have to think about it very, very carefully, consider it very, very carefully so they can be confident and also give the public confidence. It's not just a matter of tick, uh, we'll register this um, and hope for the best, which is really what they've done in Russia. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a pity and it, it undermines the rather good work that's been done over many decades on the registration of vaccines. Gary, can you give us a clear message to deliver to our patients, family and friends who ask us about the vaccine? Uh, yes, um, a vaccine will probably arrive, but it's important to understand it's not around the corner. Uh, it may be six to 12 or 18, even 18 months away, and it won't necessarily be effective. So, it may require multiple doses and there are just so many unknowns. So the best thing is, yes, let's hope for a vaccine, but don't rely on it and uh, uh, help uh, each other in the community by doing the current um, interventions of social distancing, uh, hygiene, etc., that we're all used to now, wearing masks, etc., avoiding unnecessary travel. All these things are still very, very important at this stage until either... Uh, treatments or vaccines become available. And I think treatments are more likely to become available sooner uh, than vaccines. And there are a number of treatments that do look very, very promising. And uh, again, the, there'll have to be trials undertaken. Um, but uh, treatments, of course, given to people that are unwell. So they're a little easier in terms of the regulatory process. And um, small cohort studies can be done um, with ethics approval uh, to see if various novel treatments will work or not in cohort studies. And that can be then the evidence to go ahead and do a phase one clinical trial. For example, in the US, there are a number of phase one clinical trials now with dexamethasone that have been approved, uh, purified dexamethasone. Um, and uh, we've seen that paper from the UK where dexamethasone was also quite successful in something like 30 or 40% of seriously ill patients, seriously ill patients. So that's quite a high percentage for people that have, have already gone that far in terms of their illness. So uh, there's much uh, hope in uh, treatments like that. There's also a lot of work going on with anticoagulants and um, uh, they seem to be quite successful as well when people get to that respirator stage. 
So we need treatment so a little bit earlier to stop people getting into ICU into uh, the respirator stage. So uh, uh, hopefully through good phase one clinical trials and cohort studies as well preceding that, we'll get uh, some treatments that might well be useful and that can be used worldwide until a uh, good vaccine uh, comes about. Gary, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for your very clear, cautious, but also slightly, if you like, excited. There's a little bit of excitement there. I can see it and feel it as a researcher because of the plethora of studies and platforms you're looking at. Very exciting times. I'm sure I'll be talking to you at the end of the year about the results of these trials. I look forward to it very much and be able to tell you more about the vaccines, but also our treatments. Thank you so much, Gary. Have a good day. Okay, thank you very, very much. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases is now nearly 31.2 million. The USA has recorded more than 6.8 million cases. India, nearly 5.5 million. Brazil, more than 4.5 million. Russia has more than 1.1 million. Peru, nearly 769,000 and Colombia with more than 765,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is recorded at 962,266. The USA is just shy of 200,000 deaths. Brazil recorded nearly 137,000. India, nearly 88,000. Mexico, more than 73,500, and the UK with nearly 42,000 deaths. In the past day, Victoria recorded 28 new cases of COVID-19 and three deaths. Whilst this seems a little higher than yesterday, overall, the trend is definitely heading the right way. The New South Wales and Queensland numbers are not available at the time this podcast is published. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.